1989, at the age of three months old, Nathan Charles was diagnosed with a condition called cystic fibrosis. Back then, the average life expectancy was just seven years, and doctors told his parents that he might not live to ten years old. As a result of this, Nathan would have to spend half an hour every morning and evening on a nebulizer, and he would have to take 30 pills a day. His parents didn't talk a lot about his condition, they didn't want anyone looking at him any differently, nor for him to face any discrimination for something that he was born with. Everyone accepted that this would be a permanent part of his life. Nathan didn't let this stop him though. For him, it was always about being healthy enough to play rugby, and he wasn't going to give up. When interviewed, Nathan said, I was so hell-bent on achieving my goal that I just never saw anything getting in my way that I couldn't overcome. So there was the main routine. Nebulizer, pills, rugby, then nebulizer again. Nathan was single-minded. Despite others seeing his dreams of becoming a professional rugby player as impossible, Nathan kept at it. And although it was a lot harder for him than most other people, he realised his dreams of playing for the Australian National Rugby Union team. He was finally a wallaby. Nathan Charles retired in August 2018 and is now an ambassador for cystic fibrosis. He is now 31 years old. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases and try to lift the stigma surrounding them. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. Whoa, that was a cool story. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing to see because it's been it's one of those kind of really cool stories where obviously it wasn't a nice start. It's quite scary to have that kind of information thrust upon you. But he worked at it, he had his goals in mind, and he kept working at it. And whilst that went on, research improved so that his quality of life was able to improve at each stage of his life. So he was able to live much longer than anyone ever expected he could have done, and achieve so much more than most of us do anyway. Well, I feel unsuccessful now. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things, when you see that someone has been able to become a national sensation for sport, when breathing was a lot harder for them than anyone else, It really makes you question how motivated you were when you did try to do similar things. I can't even go on a jog. You're still doing better than me. (laughs) Okay, so we're covering cystic fibrosis today. So I know a little bit about this one. Grey's Anatomy? Probably. That episode where you have the uh, couple that aren't supposed to be next to each other, aren't supposed to be with each other because they both have cystic fibrosis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of know it as something that really affects people's lifespans, and I know it's something to do with not being able to breathe very well. Yeah, so cystic fibrosis is a hereditary disease that affects the lungs and digestive system. So the body will produce a thick and sticky mucus that ends up clogging up your lungs and obstructing an organ called the pancreas. Uh, how much do you know about mucus? Slime? Uh, wouldn't 
quite call it that. So mucus can have different functions depending on where it is. Either a lot of the time it can be used for trapping bacteria in dirt. So kind of like um, sebum in your hair. So you know when your hair gets kind of all oily and dirty and grimy, that's trapping, uh, that mucus is trapping it so it doesn't get into your skin so you don't get infections. Okay, and in this case we're talking about mucus in your in your lungs? Yes, so in the lungs they'll trap dirt and bacteria and then you have other cells that kind of just fan it up, the uh, your trachea, so the tube that kind of feeds to your lungs, and then you either swallow the mucus or cough the mucus out. Oh, okay. So whenever I cough, I'm getting rid of all the London air pollution. Yeah, it's a, thankfully, our lungs are a, a, normally a self-cleaning system. Huh, cool. If, I, if only our flat was. So they have that function. Otherwise, another function they have, particularly in uh, the digestive tract, is more kind of like what uh, that sort of gel that they use for ultrasound has. It's for allowing things to move across with um, minimal friction, but also to allow proper contact so things can pass through. So you know how with an ultrasound, you put the gel on someone's stomach so that the uh, sound waves don't bounce off of the skin and instead pass through it so you can see inside? Yeah. Well, in this case, think of it more as the mucus creates the boundary so that the food can make proper contact with the line of your, lining of your intestines and nutrients can pass through. Oh, I never knew that. But mainly it's to make everything slippery, right? Yeah. In the digestive system, it's basically lube. No mucus means the food cannot slip and slide all the way down through your intestines. Not as easily, no. You're going to have a much harder time of it. Okay, so what does cystic fibrosis do? Is it no mucus? So, no. So cystic fibrosis basically boils down to this protein being faulty. Now, the protein is called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. What its job is, is it's like a little gate that you have across your cells that make mucus. And it can open and close and allow a salt called chloride. So you know when you have uh, table salt, mm-hmm. sodium chloride, there's two salts there, or two ions, sorry. You have the chloride ion and the sodium ion. In this case, the chloride, if the gate opens, chloride can pass out of the mucus-making cell. But in any type of cystic fibrosis, you have an issue with that channel. So chloride stays in the cell instead. And then because the cell is super salty, it pulls water towards it. So it will pull water away from the mucus into the cells, which then obviously makes the cells all pu- a bit more puffy, but it also means that the mucus is dry. Okay, you lost me there. You got real science real quick. So this protein, it changes the amount of, of this salt in your cells. Basically, yes. And what it's doing is it's keeping too much salt in? Yeah, there's too much salt in the cells. Okay. And so those cells next to the they sit next to the mucus? Yeah, because they make the mucus itself. So the mucus okay. will be around it. So too much salt, and because it's so salty, it pulls water in from the mucus around it. Yes, which then makes the mucus thick, so it clogs up and you can't move it as easily. Okay. So you have super thick mucus everywhere. Yes. So From what you were saying earlier, mucus is a good thing. It makes everything slippery. When it's doing its job properly, mucus is important, yes. Okay, so what's the problem here? It's not doing its job properly. If it's super thick, you can't move it along. It's not slippery because there's not enough water in it. So food's not going to make good contact and pass well. 
um, and nor are the cells in your lungs able to clear that mucus easily. That's why you think of cystic fibrosis patients as having like this hacking cough. Because they're trying to get this really thick mucus out of their lungs. Yeah, like think about when you have like a cold and you have all that phlegm stuck inside you. Ugh. And now imagine that that's kind of every moment of your life. Oh. So it's a like that's as close a parallel as I can give for someone who doesn't have cystic fibrosis because we can't fully understand it. Okay, so that's one of the main symptoms. People with cystic fibrosis have this cough. Yes. Tell me about the other symptoms. So you also end up with very salty sweat. What? Yeah. So interestingly, this one actually made an appearance on uh, Call the Midwife. Oh, yeah. And it's an, it's an old, uh, like, kind of wives' tale symptom. So, you know, it's, it's folk knowledge that you know that a child is not going to last very long if they have salty sweat. And the reason being that the cells are super salty, so then when they release water, the water is very salty. So the cells that sweat will release an extra salty water because they're not able to pass the salt out into the mucus. Oh, okay. You also end up with uh, excessive mucus in the lungs, which is obviously a problem. And although it's not fully understood, you have like an overactive inflammatory response. So if you have an infection or any of the tissue gets damaged, your body freaks out. And then that causes more damage. What? I'm sorry, you need to explain that. So the inflammatory response is just what your immune system does in response to an infection. Okay. So you know like when you get a fever, that's part of your inflammatory response. Or if you get a cut and it ends up being really hot and you get pus and things like that, that's part of inflammation. Okay. Now imagine instead of it doing what it should do and doing that a little bit and then calming down, it goes really overboard in the area. You're going to start damaging the tissue. Why? Because the inflammatory response is telling your cells that other cells you have are infected or damaged and need to be killed. Whoa. So your body's freaking out and killing extra cells it doesn't need to? Yes. Oh. So that can result in scarring in the lungs, and you can end up making your airways more narrow, so it's even harder to get air through. Because, of, because it's inflamed and narrowing the passage? Yeah, it swells up. Oh, so there's too much mucus... And you have even less space for that thick mucus. Yeah. There is a treatment for this, but it's only ibuprofen. That's the only one that exists with all the work that's been done. We've had very little luck with dealing with the inflammation in cystic fibrosis. Oh, no. Okay, so you have this really thick mucus that's affecting your breathing and giving you a terrible cough. And you also have the salty sweat. Digestive problems. Digestive problems. Yes, because it's not it's not facilitating that contact. So you don't absorb as much food. So weight loss is very common in cystic fibrosis patients. Okay, so you can't breathe and you're not getting nutrition from food. <laughs> yep. Uh, you can get jaundice because it can jam up the ducts in the liver. So it can then get infected. And then so what you're got... telling me is mucus is everywhere. Yes. Oh no. And you just have too, too much slimy mucus. You have super thick mucus rather than mucus that's slimy or slippery or the way it needs to be. So it's blocking up the tubes. It's like when you have a clogged drain. Oh no, everything is clogged and everything is terrible. Yeah. Okay. So it can be very difficult to deal with this. And obviously the way it's diagnosed nowadays, you do a genetic test. 
Cystic fibrosis is included in the heel prick test that they give babies in, at least in the UK and the US. Oh, so they check every baby for it? Yes. Because obviously it affects your life very early on and can have quite a profound effect on it. So it's worth knowing as soon as possible because the earlier you get treatment in, the more life and the better life that a patient has. Okay. I guess not having early treatment means you get more scarring in the lungs? Yes. What does scarring in the lungs mean for you? That you can't get as much oxygen in? Yeah, so the scarred tissue can't absorb oxygen well, and also that's, those, are, those are places that are nice for bacteria to grow in. Oh. Because you've got these little scarred areas that nothing's really doing much in, so they've got a calm little area they can sit on, they've got a free supply of oxygen and mucus and, and you know, things from the air, and they can just start growing off of the scar tissue. Oh, so do you just end up really ill all the time? Yeah, a lot of patients will die from infection from a bacteria known as Pseudomonas aeruginosa. All you need to know is that it's a bacteria that it actually mutates itself to adapt especially to cystic fibrosis lungs, and it can then coordinate with other members of its same bacteria and other bacteria to create a colony that then creates a big barrier that's like a wall to antibiotics and the immune system. What? It teams up with other bacteria? Yeah, it's called a biofilm. So ah. It's Yeah, so that can be very nasty. There are, there are ways to treat that, and we'll go into that a bit later, but that's a very serious thing that can happen, cystic fibrosis, those infections. Okay, so is that really, is that one of the major aspects that's affecting people's lives? So they're having issues with breathing, but is it really these infections that are the dangerous part? At the moment, infection with Pseudomonas aeruginosa is responsible for most of the cystic fibrosis patients' deaths. Oh no. So that's why there's a lot of research in it. That's part of what my PhD is about. So are you more prone to infection with cystic fibrosis like somebody who is on immune suppressants? Yes. Um, you are. So because your immune system freaks out, you don't have a coordinated attack, which means you're not going to be able to fight infections as well. But also because of these different changes like the mucus and stuff, your lungs have a different environment, which is beneficial to some of these bacteria. So they grow more easily in your lungs than they would do in anyone else's lungs if they were scarred like that. Oh, you don't want your lungs to be a nice place for bacteria. Not unless they're helping you. So, yeah, it's um, unfortunately quite unpleasant. So what is the outlook like for patients with cystic fibrosis? I think you said at the, in the intro story that it can be, that it used to be a very short life expectancy. Yeah, it's, uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of decades. But if you go back to like the 20s, you wouldn't expect someone to make it through to childhood, really. Oh. That, 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 that wasn't something that you would expect. Because they would just immediately get ill yeah, with I, childhood illnesses? Yeah, I mean, the case study, 1989, the average life expectancy was seven. Oh my goodness. And he lived till he was 30-something? He's still alive. Oh my goodness. How have we made that much progress in 30 years? So there's a lot of things that we have done, and that's where a lot of the treatments come in. So the good thing is that the life expectancy has increased dramatically to the point where you can typically expect 
48 years for men, 43 years for women. But there are instances of people living a reasonable amount of time longer than that. That's amazing. I mean, it's tragic. It's still short life comparatively. But that's such amazing advances. So people who were born and told that they just wouldn't live have been able to live full lives. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things that, I, as you see with that case study, some, some people in a situation, the seriousness of their case has meant that they've really made very good use of their time. Like, you know, they've done incredible things with their time. And then they keep on getting extra time as things improve, which just means that they can do even greater things as they go along. And it's wonderful to see. Yeah. And this is something that really affects your day-to-day -day life, doesn't it? Yes. And that's where the treatments kind of show that quite a bit. So unfortunately, cystic fibrosis, like a lot of the cases that we cover, has no cure. However, there are treatments that do help. There are quite a few medicines that you take through a nebulizer. So in this case, like an inhaler. What does that do? I, I know that they help people breathe, but how? So a nebulizer in this case kind of aerosolizes something so that you can breathe it in. So it's not just like liquid going down your lungs. Okay, so it's a way to take medicine. Yes. Okay. And in this case, the uh, types of medicine that you'll get through a nebulizer will include antibiotics for chest infections. So they can apply the antibiotics directly to the site that's infected. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, you also can have medicines that are used to thin the mucus. So the most common one is what's called a hypotonic saline solution. So that just means super salty water. We just have patients drink seawater? No, we spray seawater into their lungs, basically. Okay. Well, it's not seawater, but you know what I mean. We, we spray super salty, sterilized water into the lungs. So that salt stops the water being drawn out of the mucus because there's the same salt. There's yeah. the same amount of salt in the mucus as in the cells. Basically, it makes the, it makes the mucus saltier. Did I just science? Almost. Almost. So what it does is it makes the mucus saltier, so it pulls water out of the cells. I scienced. So, there are other treatments as well. Okay. Uh, what's called bronchiodilators. That just means it makes the tubes in your lungs expand. Ah, that seems useful. Yeah, so asthma medication will do that. So that's obviously a useful one. Steroid medication. You can have a nebulizer that gives steroid medication, again, like asthma patients will have. And that's to calm down the inflammatory response in the lungs so that your body's not completely freaking out and damaging the tissue. Okay. There are other treatments. So physiotherapy is very common. And if you've ever seen anything where they show you something for cystic fibrosis awareness, they'll show you like a child who every morning will go through some exercise where they have to lie down on one side, pat, pat their ribs, cough a certain amount of times, take deep breaths. And that's the type of physiotherapy that's done. And it's to help clear some of the mucus that's built up in the lungs. Okay, so people, so people with this condition, even with all the medication, have to really actively help move the mucus out of their body. Yeah, managing your health is almost a full-time job. So even with all that medication, it, it's still dramatically affecting your day-to-day -day life? Yes, it's difficult. It's, it's not just like having mild asthma and taking your inhaler with you. Yeah, this isn't a thing where you take it just to control the symptom, just when the symptoms happen. You take it to prevent, you have to do all of these things to prevent the symptoms. So it's, it's daily work. It's like doing your stretch. It's like doing stretches every day so that you can do the splits. You have to work at it. 
in order to maintain the results. And you're still, even with all this, you're still going to be prone to all those extra infections? Yes. Now, there is one drug that has been quite promising. Okay. It's a drug that's called Ivacaftor. Now, Ivacaftor is something that... So, remember I told you how that protein was a channel? Now, some of some of the patients have a specific mutation, which means that this drug can forcibly open the channel and make those salts leave the cell and go into the mucus. Whoa! So that's really cool. However, it's only useful for a subset of patients, and they're in the minority. And, at least in the States, it costs 300 grand a year for treatment. What? Yeah. Uh, it does seem like a lot of the time, pharmaceutical companies seem to try their best to put a price on life. Oh, let's let's not even get into the American healthcare system right now. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these drugs are just expensive full stop, but this just seems cruel. There is also quite an extreme one that you may remember from Grey's Anatomy, and this one has actually done a good job for this. So when you look at uh, how life expectancy has changed over the years for patients, one of the things that caused a noticeable increase was the introduction of lung transplants. Lung transplants? In severe cases, if your lungs are very damaged and there is a donor, so obviously someone who's unfortunately died, then you can transplant the lungs into the patient. That sounds really dangerous. This is a high-risk surgery, but there are specialists that do this a lot. So you would want to go to, obviously, a surgeon who has a particular amount of experience. And for large surgeries like this, there is normally a minimum requirement for the number of surgeries that that surgeon has to do every year to still qualify to do that surgery. Okay, so how much can that help? Because I guess it will give you undamaged lungs, mm -hmm. but are you still having problems with the mucus? Yeah, so what will happen is as your body starts you know, replacing the cells there, the problems will start building up again. But it is something where you've basically gotten kind of like a restart and a slight delay, and then you'll have a noticeable improvement in your symptoms for a while. So it makes a massive difference to the patients. Okay. So let's get into the genetics of this. What type of, what type of mutation is this? So this is what's known as an autosomal recessive disease. Recessive means you need it you need to get the gene from both your parents. Autosomal means it is not linked to a sex chromosome. Bingo. Ding, 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 ding. So this is actually the most common autosomal recessive disease in the world. The most common? Yes. And as I said before, you know, there's a fault in this protein. And the gene is unsurprisingly called CFTR because it codes a protein called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. Yes, that's a name I will remember forever. Just go with CFTR. It's what everyone else does. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely remember that too. Mm -hmm. But there are five classes of mutation. So like five families of how this can go wrong. And they kind of they kind of determine some of the symptoms you get. I'm so disappointed. I thought this was... I thought I was understanding this and now you've just told me there's five types. Well, you know, it's good that we can break it down into five because there are about... One and a half thousand mutations that cause cystic fibrosis. No! Why can't things be easy, Ant? Well, I can break these down into fairly simple ones. 
So class one just means that you don't create a functional protein at all. Class two means that you create uh, you create a misshaped protein, which your body then goes, oh, this is wrong, and destroys it. So again, you basically have no protein produced at all. Okay, I understand those. Can we stop there? No. Oh. So you have your class one, you have your class two mutation, and they are the majority of cases. Okay. You then have class three, which in this case means that you have, you make the protein, but it never opens. It's jammed shut. And that's where that drug Ivacafta works. But remember how I said that it's in the minority of cases? It's about 6% of patients that would be viable for Ivacafta. What do you mean it's jammed shut? So It's a protein. Yeah, but it's a channel. So it's a gate. It's like a, a gate. It, it can open and shut to allow them through. Okay. Oh, so in the first two, the gate doesn't even exist. Yes. And then the third one, you've lost your garage door key. Yeah. Okay. So then the drug basically is like a crowbar forcing it open. Okay. Then you have the fourth class, which is where you make a protein, but it's a bit crummy. So it does its job, but not as well as it should. So it can let this, it can let the salt pass through, but not, it's not as effective as it should be. So if you imagine if it was supposed to let through like 10 of these per whatever amount of time, instead it'll like let one or two. So does that mean class four is a little bit less severe than the others? Typically. Okay. All of these are severe though. Like this is a very serious condition. And then you have class five. And in this case, because of, uh, because of the mutation, you do produce a functioning protein, but you don't produce enough of it. Okay, so you have some doors, but not enough doors. So you have you still have the cystic fibrosis symptoms, but not as severe as in class one or two. Yeah, typically. Okay, I understood that. Not as bad as I thought. Yeah, and there is one mutation that is responsible for two-thirds of all cases. What do you mean by one mutation? Okay, so the most common mutation is what's called the Delta F5 now what this means is that you're missing a section of DNA that codes for the 508 amino acid. Okay. With missing that, the protein doesn't fold properly, so this is a class 2 mutation, and then it gets quickly degraded. So you're still trying to make the protein, but you don't have one of the bits. So it's a funny shape. So it's a funny shape and your cells go, I don't know you, and get rid of it. Yep. Okay. So you said earlier that this that cystic fibrosis is the most common recessive genetic condition, right? The uh, most common autosomal recessive. Okay, so what does that mean? How common is it? Well, you might be a little upset with this one, but in the US, so these are CDC cases, one in every two and a half to three and a half thousand Caucasian newborns have cystic fibrosis. That seems quite common. I did say it was the most common of its type. Oh no. It's less common in other groups. So for African Americans, it's one in every 17,000 births. And for Asian Americans, it's one in every 31,000 births. Ooh, that's some interesting divergence. Yes, and it's most common in Caucasians of Northern European ancestry. Huh. Interested in the history there? Yeah, and we'll get into that soon. But unfortunately, because this is quite a systemic and wide reaching illness, 
We've got to cover all the other problems that it causes. I hate this bit. I know you do. Okay, so, arthritis. Why? Your, inf- your, your inflammatory response freaks out. And so when everything is inflamed, everything hurts? Yeah, it damages the tissues and your joints and, yeah, causes pain. Okay. Osteoporosis. That's... that's um, something to do with thin bones, right? Brittle bone, yes. So this is because you're not absorbing nutrients well. So if you're not absorbing enough calcium, you can get osteoporosis. So not only do you get ill all the time, you're also more liable to break your arm. Yes. Well, that sucks. Yeah. There's also what's called intestinal strictures. That doesn't sound good. No, they're not. So what it involves is inflammation of the intestine causes it to narrow and narrow and narrow until eventually it shuts. Your intestine gets blocked. Yes. So that stops digestion, you back up the system, which can lead to a distended stomach, vomiting, malnutrition, and if not treated, you will run the risk of death. Uh, you could also cause the intestine to rupture, and then that can cause ah. septic shock. Ah. Ah. Nope. And the way that you would tr- treat this is by removing a section of the intestine normally. So you just cut out that section and stitch the bits back together. You can't just open it? No. It's normally too damaged and delicate at that point that if you did open it, you would probably cause the thing to burst in the area. Ah, okay, let's move on. Don't like this one. Yep, appendicitis. Appendicitis? Again, it's the whole, you can't clear the mucus, you get infections, the the appendix gets infected, because the appendix is attached to your large intestine. Oh, okay. An enlarged heart? I assume this is because of inflammation, but I'm not sure. Okay. You can also get uh, pancreas problems, so this includes insulin deficiency. Which causes... is this going to cause diabetes? Can do, yes. Are you proud of me for knowing that? Yes. Thank you. So, it's pancreas is kind of clogged up, it's not able to do its job properly, it can't produce insulin effectively, and eventually you can get scarred and things like that, and you can get diabetes. Oh, as if you don't have enough to worry about. Yeah. Um, They can also cause uh, reproductive problems. Why? So, again, you have, like, obviously the tubes like the fallopian tubes and the vas deferens in your reproductive system for both men and women. And if you can't clear things through that, then things can get clogged up, you can get get infection or inflammation, and then those gonads aren't going to be able to produce hormones as effectively. Oh. So you can get delayed puberty. You can also get infertility if those systems get blocked. Oh no. Because if, if like for example, the tube that the sperm has to go through gets inflamed shut or gets clogged up by the mucus, you're not going to be able to release sperm. So you're having a terrible time anyways, and then maybe you also can't have children. Yeah. With this condition, is it safe to have children anyways? They would just need to, you'd need to know the person that you were with was either not a carrier or that you did something like IVF. Okay, but that's nice that they can have children. Yes, children is an option. And I think on that slightly optimistic note, we should take the break. Okay.
Are we done with the science yet? Yeah, we're done with the science. Woo! You know what that means. History time! Yeah, it's history time. Tell me the things. Sure. So, we'll start with how far we think this could go back. So, there have been uh, studies of DNA in um, remains of people found that lived back in the Iron Age. Ooh, cool. And the DNA has had some of these mutations. They managed to get viable DNA? Yes. Yes, we've, we've been able to do that with Neanderthals as well. Ooh, is this the kind of finding bodies trapped in ice stuff? Some of it's that. Mummified bodies are quite good for it. If it's if it's in a cold, bacteria, like relatively bacteria-free, sterile, re- like relatively dry and st- like dry and sterile environment, then the DNA might survive relatively well. You want it out of sunlight, things like that. You know, if it's in a decent environment, then you might be able to find some DNA. Okay, so Iron Age. I'm trying to remember when that is. Really old. Mm-hmm. So, the Iron Age is kind of around about... Five? Let me look it up. Look yeah, it up. okay, we'll check that and you just say when the Iron Age is. So yeah, so we're playing another round of Jules, play- Jules Goes on Google whilst I continue with this and we'll we'll get a better idea of when the Iron Age was. So, with all this uh, genetic dating stuff I'm covering, it's all going to be that one mutation I mentioned, the Delta F508. Just because it's so common. That causes type 2? Yes. Okay. Okay, Iron Age is the name given to the time period from approximately 500 BC to 43 AD in Britain. So, or around 800 BC. Basically, the first millennium BC. So, about two to three thousand years ago is the Iron Age. Okay. So... Already got some actual DNA that's quite old saying that this mutation exists and this specific mutation. Now, genetic study was published in the European Journal of Human Genetics that was trying to date this Delta F508 mutation. Okay. And DNA was collected from 190 patients originating from different regions of Europe as well as German Americans. And the age of each region, they estimated it by using variation within specific markers around the gene of each population. So each population had common markers, and from that, and from from the differences between them and other groups, you could work out how far apart they were. Because we know, we know on average how many generations it will take for certain things to change. Okay, so they kind of built a family tree? Yes. Tracing this particular condition? For this particular mutation. Okay. So when they did that, they estimated that the northwest of Europe had its origins in the early Bronze Age. And for the southeast of Europe, it was about a thousand years ago. So it kind of went from the northwest and moved over to the southeast, it would seem. So they think that the condition originated in northern Europe? Yes, and the date that they went, uh, the date that they uh, predicted was around 3000 BC in northwestern Europe. Sometimes we talk about the history of these diseases and it's popping up spontaneously the same mutation all around the world. But you're saying in this one they think it's come from a very small area where this mutation happened? Yeah, we don't seem to have any rates for random mutations occurring in cystic fibrosis, which would imply that that sort of thing happens very slowly. So mo- so the vast majority of cases are inherited, so you can kind of find an origin to them in some ways. And it would seem that for this particularly common mutation... It 
first came to be somewhere in northwestern Europe in the early Bronze Age. So, so the researchers thought that this mutation likely migrated along with a group of people known as the Bell Beakers. And what they think happened is that this group migrated from northwestern Europe to other regions as they expanded, and they, you know, they married and interbred with other populations, and the mutation got introduced to those groups and then survived further. Now, the Bell Beaker people, are, they're just named after the beakers that have been found in archaeological sites. And they're believed to originate from Spain in 2800 BC. So it would look like maybe they moved somewhere, acquired it from another group, and then went to elsewhere based on the genetic dating. But there's not enough evidence to support a theory one way or the other. Interesting. I love it when archaeologists go and figure out the movement of a population just by looking at their pots. Of course, that kind of evidence also can be just evidence of trade rather than entire population movement, but it still does show that the populations are moving and mixing. That's good. Yeah, it is cool to see those sort of things. So you're asking if there's a reason why this mutation is around and why has it survived? Yeah, it feels like it's a really deadly one until the last couple decades, so why is it being passed on? So we have some evidence that suggests that there is a benefit for having one copy of the mutation. So heterozygous advantage. Okay. So there have been some studies, obviously these have not been tested on people, they've just been tested on cells and things like that, where they infected the cells with salmonella typhi. That's the bacteria that creates typhoid fever. What? Okay, I'm glad they're not giving that to people. Yeah. Having one copy of the mutation made the cells more resistant to infection. Weird. Also, there is a hypothesis that cholera toxin is less effective on mutated CFTR because cholera works by forcing that protein open, creating lots of, making lots of the chloride go into the mucus, and then that means that you have lots of really watery mucus, which causes the diarrhea. Okay, so this. So this mutation, having one copy of it, might be a protection against some of the really common diseases that have de- devastated human populations in history. Yes. Okay, that's so interesting that there might be a benefit, and so that's probably how it's become so common as well. Yes. Okay, so what about the scientific history? When did we figure this one out? Okay, so cystic fibrosis was first truly characterized by Dorothy Hansen Anderson, in 1938. A woman? Yes. So she was conducting autopsies on patients who had died of celiac disease. But when she was looking at these autopsies, she noticed that there was scarring on the pancreas. And that's where the name cystic fibrosis originated from. Uh, It kind of means like like scarring of the pancreas. When we say fibrosis of things, it tends to mean scarring. Okay. So she gave the name cystic fibrosis. And thought it was linked to the pancreas? Well... This was these were young children that had died of digestive issues, so that's what he associated it with. It was later when the uh, impacts of the, the they had on the lung were then linked to it. So it was only known to affect the pancreas because the children didn't actually live long enough to show these respiratory symptoms most of the time. Really, this is 1938. If in 1981 someone's not expected to make it to ten, that then then. Children won't live very long. They won't necessarily get scarring on their lungs during that time. It's surprising that this disease wasn't even characterized yet. 
So after that was done, she also hypothesized that the disease was recessive. So she was a brilliant individual. She also developed the first efficient method of diagnosing it in 1942. And this was what was called like a sweat conductance. So... Oh, ooh. so this is the salty sweat. And is it like... I remember back in science class, they would have us put salt in the water and then stick electrodes in it to see if it conducted electricity? Yes, because water does not actually conduct electricity. It's the salts in the water that conducts electricity. She was checking if their sweat conducted electricity? So the sweat would either way, but because there was less resistance, the electricity moved more easily through patient's sweat, you knew that they had cystic fibrosis. Feels like it would be easier to just, like, taste the sweat. Also gross, though. You need something you can measure. It's not appropriate after a while to have a standardised testing system that involves licking a child's face. (laughs) That's probably going to be the title of this. You can't lick a child's face. Might tell you if I have cystic fibrosis. Fine. She figured out how to test for it without licking children. <laughs> Got it. Exactly. So then later on in 1988, the first mutation was actually discovered for cystic fibrosis. And uh, this was three people found it Francis Collins, Lapchi Siu, and John Reardon. And this was the, the Delta F508 mutation. Okay. And then in 1989, Lapchi Su again discovered the CFTR gene itself. So they discovered the mutation first and then actually characterized the gene as a whole later. Cool. Good job. So where are we now with cystic fibrosis? Well, we have a couple approaches to trying to help with cystic fibrosis conditions. We do have gene therapy. And the method here is to try and insert a functional gene into the lung tissue. And this is currently under development. So there's a consortium of universities, so Oxford, Edinburgh, and UCL, that have developed this form of gene therapy, where they use a virus to transport a package of this gene and put it into the cell so that the cell can then use the gene. Ooh, and would this be a cure? It would last as long as those cells lasted. So it really improved quality of life. As I say, this this could be a cure, but I don't know what the current results are for this. The thing I do know, though, is that uh, the development for this is kind of halted because they want to be able to scale it up before they continue the tests. Okay. Which makes sense. Other treatments that are going? There's something called phage therapy. Now, this is cool. This is using viruses to kill the bacteria. So the bacteria that are infecting you, you use a virus called a bacteriophage, which basically means a bacteria eater, and it kills the bacteria. And this is quite good because it can work on drug-resistant bacteria. So you're just giving people a virus? Well, bacteria... So viruses are very specific, and we are very different from bacteria. So you give people a virus that's only going to nom the bacteria and not nom you? Yes, and they can be quite specific to the bacteria itself as well, so specific type of bacteria. That's so cool. Who was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give people a virus. There is one problem, though. Bacteria can actually develop an immunity to them. Oh, so it might work for a while. Yes. The other main kind of research that's being developed as well is treating the infections with other chemicals. So... 
There are drugs that not only kill the bacteria, but prevent bacteria from using techniques to avoid antibiotics that are under development. So remember how I said there was that biofilm, which is like a big barrier that the bacteria make for themselves so that your immune system and drugs can't reach them? Mm-hmm. You can make chemicals that target those communication systems and screw with them so that the bacteria don't make those biofilms and you can actually prevent them from ever making them if you keep keep giving them the drug. So stop the bacteria from talking to each other? Yeah. Basically, you're cutting off their Wi-Fi. <laughs> okay, so that so these treatments are really about helping manage the infections? Yes. Yeah, and that's what some of my work is on. We're trying to work out why a specific chemical seems to stop the bacteria from making these protective films. Ah, cool. There are also some new drugs that are being developed to try and control the inflammation because ibuprofen is not enough. No, doesn't seem like enough. No, so hopefully there'll be some better anti-inflammatories on their way as well. Okay, so we're getting to the end now. What are the stigmas associated with this disease? Thankfully, there's not much in the way of stigma for this condition. Like people have a, people don't really have stereotypes associated with them in general. But people have misunderstandings, which means that they can be a little either impatient or they can say the wrong thing to a patient, which can obviously be a bit hurtful. So that's more what we're going to address with this one. Just like, you know, how you can be a better friend to a cystic fibrosis patient. Okay. And is there a place you got this information? Uh, Cystic Fibrosis Trust, I believe. Uh, One simple one is to, you know, don't judge them on what they're eating. You shouldn't do this to anyone anyway, but you'd be surprised how many people do it. Try not to comment on people's food. But cystic fibrosis patients often have to eat fattier foods because they need more calorie-dense meals. Oh. Also, if you have a cough or cold or, you know, coronavirus... Ex- uh, maintain an acceptable distance from them. And I think for this one, it's also important to say, at the moment, wear a bloody mask. Except that someone with cystic fibrosis might be more tired, because the person needs to get up early for physio, may have sleeping problems because they're in pain and uncomfortable, and all those things mean that you're going to be exhausted. Also, also, they're just fighting to breathe and probably fighting off more infections all the time. Yep, and also pain's exhausting. Don't suggest treatments. It's kind of the same issue, really. So ultimately, you just got to be there for a you got to be there for someone who has cystic fibrosis. Be patient. Accept that it's difficult, but don't pity them because they know that it's difficult. But it's what they do. And I think on the that that is the end of the episode. That was interesting. Thank you. Oh, no worries. So I've got a couple links on this one. Uh, we've got uh, the what's known as the clinician resources for cff.org and that's the cystic fibrosis foundation Uh, for that you can find a lot of information including the types of mutations and how that might affect symptoms there's also the paper that was used for dating the mutation which is estimating the age of phe 508 del with family studies of geographical, dis- geographically distinct European populations and the early spread of cystic fibrosis. So that's a paper that, I, if, if you are up for scientific papers, I'd recommend reading. I think it's also worth noting on this one that there's lots of first-hand accounts out there that, you know, that's not our area of expertise. But if you really want to 
know how to help somebody with cystic fibrosis, maybe go have a look at those kind of accounts or ask somebody about it. If you've liked this episode, come follow us on Twitter at GeneticDrift1 or email us with any comments, suggestions for new episodes, general questions at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com. Also, consider joining our Facebook group and getting involved in the conversation there. Yep. And on that, I was just going to say that the music for this podcast, as with every episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. Uh, Thank you for listening in on our redone, reformatted version of the first episode. And withhold your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.